Good morning. In a court of law, before testimony uh, is given, an oath is sworn. I swear by Almighty God that the evidence I shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. We've all heard that phrase dozens, perhaps hundreds of times on the television, uh, in the movies. Some of you may have even had that oath sworn to you during jury service. And maybe a few of you, as an expert witness, as a character witness, or an eyewitness, may have placed your hand on the Bible and made that solemn promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because the search for truth is the sole purpose of a trial, to determine one clear binary fact, A or B, yes or no, true or false, guilty or not guilty. But the oath is necessary because while truth is absolute, communicating it and discerning it can be much more complicated. Take the whole truth, for example. Politicians are masters of stretching the truth like a balloon animal to shape it to their purposes. The Erskine May Rules, that's the handbook of MPs' behaviour, forbids calling another honourable member a liar. It gives this equivalence with misrepresentation, insulting coarse or abusive language, or an accusation of drunkenness. My favourite part is the list of words forbidden by the Speaker of the House of Commons, which includes blaggard, coward, git, guttersnipe, hooligan, rat, swine, stool pigeon and traitor. Yet of all these childish and colourful insults, liar carries the greatest shame and the stiffest penalty. MPs will sometimes use considerable ingenuity to get around this restriction. Winston Churchill famously used the expression terminological inexactitude to outright accuse a fellow MP of lying. In truth, politicians almost never lie. But equally, they even more rarely tell the whole truth. Instead, they highlight and trumpet expedient facts while obscuring inconvenient truths or failing to share the full details or context. Politics and spin, then, are not the mastery of lies, but of half-truth. And there is a similar urge to simplify or popularise the Christian faith by leaving out some of our more inconvenient or difficult teaching. In his book, Jesus 2000, Dr George Carey, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, made a claim that the Corinthians would have recognised and Paul would have fumed about. Unlike the birth of Christ and the crucifixion, he wrote, Christians cannot know with the same certainty that he was resurrected. I understand his temptation as he sought to fit our faith for a new generation and a new millennium, to make the Christian message more acceptable and accessible. But as Paul tells the church in Corinth and reminds us this morning, without the resurrection the gospel may be more palatable, but it is also powerless. The whole truth is required. That Jesus lived, was crucified, buried and rose again on the third day. The whole truth and nothing more.
the final part of that court oath is nothing but the truth. You see, once you reach the whole truth, you have to stop, because anything else is just marketing. The salesman takes over where the facts run out, exaggerating, extrapolating, adding sizzle and sparkle, associating emotions and character traits, characteristics and sensations. There's a saying in marketing about the difference between unethical and ethical advertising. Unethical advertising uses lies to deceive people. Ethical advertising uses the truth to deceive people. You see, adverts no longer sell strictly on the facts, details, performance or specification, but the way a product will make you feel. Estate agents window dress their descriptions with flowery prose, and homeowners eager for a sale will fill their property with the scent of fresh bread. The church, from Corinth to Linfield, has struggled with this same temptation, to decorate the gospel with additional doctrine, traditions, hoops and hurdles, sometimes to deliberately make our proposition more attractive, but mostly just ending up as additional barriers, burdens, distraction and padding. We would do well to heed Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians 13, for we cannot do anything against the truth but only for the truth. In other words, if you hear nothing else this morning, let it be this. Would the church please stop trying to change the truth and instead let the truth change you? No one can be saved by the gospel light and no one needs the gospel plus. Only the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. In court, it's not the witness, but their evidence that matters. And Paul says here, it's not the messenger, but the message which is important. The gospel message is that the crucified Christ became the resurrected Christ. And in chapter 15, verse 1, we read, This is the truth Paul preached. Have you heard it? This is the truth they received. Have you taken it on board? This is the truth on which they took their stand, because holding fast, standing firm upon this truth, is the source of your salvation. Archimedes, another famous Greek, said, Give me a place to stand, and I can move the world. The gospel, our resurrection hope, is that place of strength. Hence, of all that Paul has taught and all that he has written, he declares this is of first importance. Because in verse 19 we read, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The resurrection is not some optional advanced theology for preachers and PhDs. It is the essential core of the witness and purpose and ministry of Christ. Greeks are known for two main things. Not paying their taxes uh, and inventing logic. One has recently messed up their economy. The other in Corinth was causing havoc with their Christianity. The problem is outlined just at the end of our passage, moving on to verse 12. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Greek philosophy and logic could embrace that the spirit may be eternal, but bodily resurrection was a stumbling block. The body, the flesh, represented all that was temporary and impure. 
The gospel then was absolute foolishness. And in Acts 17.32 we read how when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, the church at Athens laughed at the notion. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. They could believe that Jesus, if he was a god, might be resurrected. Greek gods did have immortal physical bodies, but they were denying they simply couldn't accept the bodily resurrection of all believers. As he lays out his case in verses 3 through 11, Paul mimics the format and formality of a court proceeding or legal argument. Paul, instead of battling Greek logical tradition, appeals directly to it and uses it against them. He gives them hard evidence to back his case and turns their reasoning on its head. In this passage this morning, we see three types of witnesses to the truth. And firstly, Paul calls up to the stand the expert witness of Scripture. Paul, we know, is an expert in the law, and Scripture provides him firm evidence that Jesus is the long-promised and predicted Christ. In verse 4, which Adrian read at the beginning of our service, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, he's highlighting, that he was actually definitely dead. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is no random act or unsubstantiated claim, but a fulfilment of generations of teaching and over 300 specific prophecies from Genesis to Malachi. Throughout scripture, the promise of the Messiah is clearly foretold. And Jesus clearly the only person on earth to fulfill it. From his virgin birth in Bethlehem, through the tribe of Israel and the lineage of King David, living a sinless life and making atoning work for the sins of his people, and ultimately through his death and resurrection, all fulfill the promises of the Old Testament. So Paul says, according to the scriptures, Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, according to the scriptures, Exodus 13, Leviticus 8 and 9, Job 19, according to the scriptures, not to forget Isaiah 26, Daniel 12, etc., etc., etc. And Paul, having called to the stand the expert witness and authority of scripture, then lines up the testimony of a whole host of eyewitnesses. In Acts chapter 1 verse 3, we read that after his, that is Jesus' death and suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing, actually the word is stronger than that, it means gave many infallible, gave many incontrovertible proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Paul gives the Corinthians a long list of these eyewitnesses who can attest to this incontrovertible proof. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. We don't have a full account of all of these appearances. We can't even be sure if the 500 Paul speaks of were present during Matthew 28 or on another occasion. 
And it seems unfair that the New Testament always leans so heavily on the testimony of men. And Paul makes no mention, for example, of the women who encountered Christ at the empty tomb. But this is probably to support the legitimate and legal basis of Paul's argument. Only men would have been permissible as witnesses, so he only allows himself their testimony. Some have fallen asleep, have passed away, so again their testimony is inadmissible. But many are still alive, most, he says, and to them this is no Greek myth or legend, but a personal testimony. The resurrection is no fraud, no clique, cult, or conspiracy. Paul points to hundreds of living witnesses to make his case. Finally, we can see this whole passage, the gospel, indeed the whole of the Old and New Testament, as an exhaustive character witness. Not on behalf of Paul, he continues to self-deprecate at the end of our passage, that while he, yes, was a witness, he is the least a runt, one abnormally born. And he uses his low status to point to the character and grace of the God who saved him from himself. For the person in the dock, the character witnessed about throughout scripture is that of God himself. Whenever Paul spoke of the power of God, he did not reference God's power in creation as great as that was, but the greater power of Christ's resurrection. Ephesians 1.18 says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Far above all. The greatest power God ever demonstrated was the power that he used to raise Jesus from the dead. The forces of hell were marshalled at that single moment as never before or since in all eternity. All to prevent the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was dead and buried. And then God lifted his mighty arm and hands that flung stars into space broke forever the chains of sin and death. The greatest single demonstration of God's power in all history was manifested in that moment and Jesus Christ arose. In our year exploring our relationships with God, his justice and his grace His love and his longing to each of us is attested to by his actions and his faithfulness. God's power, God's goodness, God's mercy. His character is revealed and witnessed, his covenant promised sealed in death, and his mercy and hope revealed in resurrection life. This is not a metaphor or a parable. It is cold, hard, absolute truth. Such a conviction is the polar opposite of our society's notion that no one can claim to know objective truth. Today we talk about our personal faith as if we get to pick and choose what's true, as if something is only true or somehow more true because I choose to believe it. 
Paul declares that the bodily resurrection is not true because I believe it. I must believe it because it is true. And because the fact that it is true changes everything. Christ's crucifixion is the lens and his resurrection the light through which all things, all goodness, all suffering and all glory can be viewed with clarity, with hope and with confidence. Paul says the cross, the tomb, the resurrection. It's all you need. It's all that matters. It's all sufficient. Hold it fast and it will keep you in God's everlasting grip because it is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Amen.